It's 9222, and this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Peter Nash loves it when I say that over and over and over again every week. This week, it's about the truth. Or is it really not true? My goodness, I saw a bunch of things this week that made me scratch my head and do a double take and roll my eyeballs, you know, the eyeball 360 thing. So let's start with life expectancy continues to go down in the United States. This is like the third year in a row. More importantly, this is the lowest number that we've seen since 1996. So not surprising, life expectancy went down during COVID. Before that, it was the opioid epidemic. But the CDC announced, you might have seen this in CNN, all the major news outlets, Reuters, etc. They featured this at the top of their news a few days ago that, again, it has dropped. This time, for those born this year, their life expectancy is 76.1 years. So this is not good. Um, it's the lowest it's been since 1996. It dropped um, again, like 2.5 years in the last two years, which is really a big drop. Um, and it's really all presumed to be mostly COVID. You know, we also had data, I think, last week that said that the uh, opioid use and cigarette use has actually gone down while marijuana and hallucinogen use has gone up. So it's not probably from opioid deaths anymore. It's from COVID deaths. And yes, in the United States, we have greater than 1 million COVID deaths since this began in March of 2020. Another head scratcher is... ANAs are going up. Are you kidding me? Are you not busy enough with re not re nonsensical consults? Well, here we go, folks. Um, in three different eras, the NIH NHANES survey study actually did ANA testing using an indirect immunofluorescence assay on HEP2 cells, sort of the standard, on over 13,000 people between 1988 and 91, 99 and 2004, and 2011, 2012. It's not even really up to date, and it's going up. Uh, in the first time period, around 1990, the rate was 11% of the population has ANAs. That's kind of high. Do the math on that, folks. It goes up some 10 years later, um, 99 to 2004 to 11.4. Okay, a modest jump. But 1990, no, 2011-2012, it goes up to 16.6 in the population. If you do the math, a math on the on the adult U.S. population, that means that we now have 41.5 million Americans who have a positive ANA, and 250, 60,000 of them have lupus. So think of the number of excess consults you'll be getting sometime soon. Again, it behooves us to not use the ANA as a screening test, to use it wisely only in patients who have lupus-specific symptomatology, therefore making it, making it a good confirmatory test as opposed to a screening test or a diagnostic test. It's not a diagnostic test. Otherwise, if it was, we wouldn't have all these positive results. So I received a tweet this week that I thought was interesting. Do you think that um, a tweet message, I must say, uh, do you think that there's a higher risk of uh, aortic aneurysms amongst psoriatics? And I thought initially, um, you know, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Maybe a small subset of that is uh, aneurysms. I looked it up and boy, 
I was actually surprised. There's a lot of papers that show that patients with psoriasis have a repeated significant risk of abdominal aortic aneurysms. Um, not necessarily death from abdominal aortic aneurysms, but abdominal aortic aneurysms. Some studies have shown higher rates, um, some significantly higher rates with higher degrees of skin activity in psoriasis. Um, and one analysis showed that the rate was a hazard ratio of 1.30, a 30% higher risk. Uh, and that was significant. More so in those with disease activity, with increasing age, and more so in women than in men. I found that surprising and part of my head-scratching week. What's the number of people who get myalgias with statins? You know, based on our experience, where it seems like there's a really healthy number of people who can't take it, the number one reason is because of muscle problems. Lancet did a meta-analysis of this. And they look at uh, over 80,000 patients, almost 20 different placebo-controlled studies. At one year, the amount of myalgias due to statins over and above placebo rate was a 7% increase, meaning that 1 in 15 people on statins get myalgias. That's just getting myalgias. If you're on a high-dose statin therapy, you know, big doses of atorvastatin, 80 milligrams or more, it's said to be maybe a one in 10 risk of having myalgias. And you do know that only a fraction of those people go on to actually get true myositis, muscle disease, muscle necrosis, etc. After one year, however, there was no excess in myalgias due to the statin, meaning the placebo rates and the statin rates in the, how many studies can there be that have placebo going on out beyond one year? But there were enough of them that they said that emphatically in this Lancet meta-analysis. I thought that was interesting. This is the end of our head-scratcher session when I tell you about um, the uh, United Kingdom Biobank study that has almost 400,000 people in it. And they were looking for, and this is a report from Philip Robinson and um, people at the University of Alabama, uh, Birmingham, um, and it looks at COVID associations. And in this very large cohort, cohort they found that those, who, those people who are taking supplemental folic acid had an increased risk of a COVID diagnosis, a 50% increased risk, by the way, odds ratio of 1.51, and an increased risk of death compared to those not taking folate, 2.6 fold higher. What is this about? Obviously, in this UK population where folate is not generally used or supplemented um, in, in most food products, they looked at those who are on methotrexate. It turns out patients who are on methotrexate did not have a higher rate of COVID or COVID death. Patients on methotrexate and folate did not have a higher rate of COVID or COVID death. So what could this be? Is this folate as a biomarker for people who are older or they, they supposedly control for that? Or some other lifestyle? I find this really um, unusual and I always want to know is it real or is it fishing for a p-value? Don't really know. Am I still going to take folic acid? Well, just in my multivitamin, I'm not taking extra folic acid. I wouldn't advise anyone to stop folic acid based on this data because I think we need to see more good population-based research or an intervention trial. That'll take forever to do. I think the big information this week was the CDC, not CDC, the FDA, approving um, the two 
um, booster vaccines for the the these Omicron variants BA.5, BA.4, BA.5 being accounting for almost 90% of infections in the United States right now, that both Pfizer and Moderna uh, are ready to go to press and uh, ship these out to you. And the FDA has approved them largely based on animal data, some human data, but they haven't been well studied. Um, and the idea here is that there certainly are people who are going to need this, elderly, uh, immunosuppressed, etc., and that they should get it. Uh, it is going to be shipped this week and it'll be available in a week or two, uh, widely in the United States and maybe elsewhere. The new, what's new about this recommendation is you're allowed to get this particular booster um, within two months of your last shot. If you remember the t last time we had a booster, it was six months or more. Now it's two months or more. Um, secondly, they're recommending it also in children over the age of 12 for the Pfizer vaccine and over the age of 18 for the Moderna vaccine. Now, again, a lot of uproar on social media and, and uh, the news about, well, you know, should you take it? Is it too much too soon? One of the reasons is that there's a lot of long COVID syndrome going on right now, and you can avoid it by getting vaccinated. Um, Thursday, yesterday, the CDC and the ACIP, the Committee on Vaccinations, met, reviewed the data, showed data. Eric Topol, if you follow him on Twitter, you probably should. He puts up a lot of good information, useful information about the uh, COVID and COVID-related research showing that in human studies, the use of these two new vaccines were not as effective as the last boosters that we received. The third and fourth shots, which were booster shots, um, were, you know, giving great protection around 80% or above. These are more like in the 60% range. And still, that's an advantage, but not quite as good as the last one. So should you get it? I'm going to. I think you should advise your patients to do so as well. Um, you can find that citation again in our show notes that will uh, link you to the, the papers that give you this information. A longitudinal study of over 400 patients with fibromyalgia who are enrolling in a study looked at a lot of different parameters. And in this study, they showed 73% of patients had depression, depression or depressive symptoms at enrollment after their intervention that went down to 53%. This is notable because if you look at the fibromyalgia research, it is said that most patients with fibromyalgia don't have depression or anxiety. It only, only about 30% of patients actually have a real ICD um, or DSM-4, 5, whatever it is, psychiatric diagnosis with depression leading the way. Only 30%. These numbers are much larger. Now, maybe it's a selection bias based on those entering the trial, but I found these a little bit shocking and I thought worth uh, putting out there for you. There's a nice report from the WHO and Vigibase. Vigibase is like MedWatch in the United States and the FDA, looking at the development of scleroderma manifestations or systemic sclerosis following drug use. Uh, and high on the list, as you might imagine, were the anti-cancer drugs. That made up about 42% of drug-associated scleroderma. Another, the rest of the, the, the cases were individual cases, 60 plus percent were individual cases where there was the drug exposure and then the scleroderma symptom, usually skin tightening. Again, most of these were taxane-based agents, bleomycin, vinblastine, 
imatinib, uh, decarbazine, uh, pembrolizumab, that's the checkpoint inhibitor, uh, pemetrexed, um, not sure which one that is, and also hormone-related therapy, uh, romoplastin and eculizumab, surprisingly. Um, there are others that you can uh, obviously point to. Um, bleomycin's always been high on that list, and I've only had a few cases of drug-induced uh, scleroderma over the years. Speaking of drug-induced, what drug causes um, the most drug-induced manifestations? I think it's probably TNF inhibitors causing one, drug-induced lupus. Um, but actually, TNF inhibitors, as you know, does cause psoriasis. A particular, a particular study was online uh, about children who had, were taking in TNF inhibitors for either IBD, JIA, or um, chronic non-infectious osteomyelitis, what used to be CRMO and other, other names. Anyway, when they looked at these kids, compared to those not on TNF inhibitors, there was a significantly increased risk with adalimumab, 2.7-fold, uh, infliximab, 2.3, and nitanosep, 2.2-fold, significantly higher risks in those kids. Still, the events are very, very low. By contrast, looking at methotrexate and DMARGE, no increased risk of developing psoriasis in those kids taking just DMARD therapy. Interesting. Another study from the pediatric literature, Pediatric Rheumatology Online, looked at ways of weaning off of biologics, and we're mainly talking about systemic onset JIA and Stills disease and what to do with IL-1 inhibitors or IL-6 inhibitors because you don't know when they're going to go into remission. I tell my patients who develop those diseases, I've seen many, many, as you know, over the years, when they ask right up front, how long am I going to have to take this stuff? Or how long am I going to have these fevers, rashes, and whatnot? And I say, nobody knows, but eight months to eight years is what I would project. Meaning, if this is going to go away for a few weeks, it's not Stills disease. It was some intercurrent illness, and we'll never know. But eight months to eight years is probably reasonable, except I don't know exactly when they're in remission, especially when the drugs I'm using are working so well they have no symptoms. So one way to know when to uh, do this is to just taper therapy. My rule is show me a year of no activity and then we can taper therapy. So what was investigated in this particular report were um, and found that there was no difference between these different regimens with anakinra, QOD dosing, I then go to every three-day dosing, and if you're off Anakinra for more than three days and you still have active disease, it comes back within three days. Some kind of still symptom comes back. But QOD is a good way to start. You can also do the same um, with canakinumab and tocilizumab where you can't do it every other day. You can either reduce the doses, the milligram per kilogram or usual dose that you use, or prolong the interval. You know, go from every four weeks to every six weeks to every eight weeks, for instance, with uh, canakinumab or with tocilizumab. Turns out that weaning off the drugs was most successful in those people who received biologic interventions early in the diagnosis of their systemic JIA. I don't know if that helps you, but at least someone is addressing the problem that may plague you. In Western Australia, they did a study, a population-based study of adult stills disease, showed that the incidence was 0.22 per 100,000 or it's 2.4 cases per 100,000 people. So, if you've got a million people, you can expect 24 cases in your city. You do the math on how many Stills disease patients and adults are running around this year. 
They said it was higher if you had prior liver disease, serious infections, joint replacement. Um, I find all those sort of nonsensical, not sure what that means. But I did like the analysis that looked at mortality. And the mortality figures for those who were diagnosed with adult Stills disease actually was no higher than those who did not have Stills disease. And again, that's both at one year after diagnosis and five years after diagnosis, which is what I've always contend. Stills disease doesn't kill anybody. The steroids you use will kill somebody if you're not careful about it. And then, of course, there's about 23 to 38% of Stills patients who will develop macrophage activation syndrome, which has a very high mortality rate if not diagnosed promptly and treated aggressively. But the number of people who do actually die with Stills in adults from MAS is still quite few, but then again, Stills disease in adults is really rare to begin with. And then a rare number of that is going to be very, very few. I put up a review um, this week. It's come from a, a Nature Nephrology, a nephrology journal, which talks about Seagas Sting, um, uh, enzyme cyclic GMP, AMP synthetase, and self genomic and mitochondrial DNA. Um, which stimulates C gas, which dimerizes and then binds to endoplasmic reticulum protein stimulator of interferon genes, sting, and this leads to an inflammatory cascade. But C gas sting keeps coming up. I'm seeing a lot of it in the last few months. Associations with vasculitis, associations with auto-inflammatory and autoimmune disease. And that's why I think you need to know the sting, as you know, was, I think, first introduced to me by Dan Kastner describing SAVI, the sting-associated small vessel vasculitis syndrome in infants. Um, got a family history of it and all, all that. And um, that's a very novel syndrome that it's a part of the auto-inflammatory failure. It's a type 1 interferonopathy. But there have been now several diseases associated with sting abnormalities. And this review goes over how you get auto-inflammatory, autoimmune, neurodegenerative, and also acute kidney injury. Um, due to defects in this particular pathway. Um, more importantly, that this particular pathway seems to be treated well by jack inhibition amongst other methodologies of treating. So it's worth a, a download and a read. JAMA Open Network talked about how many steps it takes to reduce your cardiovascular risk. This is the cardia cohort study of over 2,000 young adults, 30, age 38 to 50, um, and they followed them for more than 10 years, and they showed if you, the number was 7,000. If you take more than 7,000 steps a day, you had a 50 to 70% chance of 50 to 70% lowering of mortality over time compared to those who took less than 7,000 steps a day. If you're looking to advise your patients, 7,000 steps a day it is. Um, if I go walking for an hour, uh, and have my usual day, I'm going to hit about almost 10,000. If I'm working in my office and not exercising and just running around doing a few errands, I'm doing 2,000, 3,000 steps. So you really do have to urge people to get up and move um, to really become more cardiovascular fit um, uh, and all the benefits that will ensue from that. This week, this past week, a study, a cardiology congress in Barcelona presented the all-heart study that actually looked at the value of allopurinol when given to 5,721 patients who did not have gout. So if you look at um, cardiology studies and you look at the associations, um, 
uh, between mortality um, and predictors, hyperuricemia is a bad predictor for really high mortality rates in cardiovascular outcome studies. So the idea here is that maybe, and, and, and of course that you know we need it's an antioxidant. We we, we use um, uh, uh, uric acid as um, it's we don't have it. Birds have it. We don't have it. It's an powerful antioxidant, and you know. And the question is, if you use allopurinol, can you lower uric acid so that you can protect yourself? And in this particular study, it did not show the ability to reduce either non-fatal myocardial infarctions, uh, non-fatal stroke, or cardiovascular deaths in patients with ischemic heart disease. So there isn't a byproduct to just taking allopurinol and whatnot. Now, in gout patients, where inflammation is also on board, probably driven by uric acid, there are more studies saying that, yes, lowering uric acid levels with a urate-lowering therapy does result in lower cardiovascular event rates, but not all studies say that. But I think the preponderance of evidence is in favor of it. But there it's a complex story. Gouts are um, complicated, highly inflamed, lots of comorbidities. We'll end with a, re a report on sleep and rheumatoid arthritis. I spend a lot of time coaching my patients on sleep, uh, um, questioning them on sleep. This particular study of 4,200 RA patients looked at sleep, found that 21% had obstructive sleep apnea or OSA symptoms. 30% um, had restless leg syndrome or symptoms and 43% had short duration sleep. Overall, two thirds of patients with RA had significant sleep symptoms and sleep disorders. And by the way, um, that these sleep problems correlated with disease activity in a very negative fashion. Not surprisingly, bad sleep will drive pain and will also drive fatigue, and that will affect some of these scores, but you'll wonder, you know, is there a connection between what goes on in the brain, what goes on in the joint? We certainly believe there is. Again, sleep is gigantically important to our patients. I want to remind you to give us a great um, review on wherever you listen to your podcast. We could really appreciate that. You can also go to the website and email and record your case or question that we'll discuss in future issues. I hope you have a good and safe week. We'll talk next week here on the podcast. Bye-bye.